but more important, God told him. I meant to mention earlier that uh, when we pray for those that are uh, doing missions this week, Sammy and Lynn Weaver, they were on my list, they are, have gone this morning uh, and they are flying to the Appalachian Mountains to be involved with a church that is doing a, a mission emphasis this week, I think in Kingsport, Tennessee. So y'all pray for Sammy and Lynn. This summer we are in the book of Isaiah, so you can turn there in, this morning in your Bible. God has called his people to a life of holiness. He did in Isaiah's day, and he does it in our day. He calls his people to holiness. And there is a path or a road that God teaches us about in his scripture, not only in Isaiah, but in other scriptures. It is what I have described this summer as the road to holiness. There is a path, a road, a way that God has made. So not only a calling, but there is a path, a road that God has set before us. And that's what we are learning about. The end result at the end of the road is that our lives would reflect Holy God. That God would bring us through the process, the road, so that our lives would be a reflection of who He is. As His children, His people, our lives are to reflect who He is. For Isaiah, God brought him through an experience that is recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. This is not really where we're going to camp out this morning, but I want you to see this in the framework. God brought Isaiah through an experience that taught him about the road to holiness, and that experience becomes a microcosm of the next 50 years of his life, his ministry, and his message. We can glean most of that from the 66 chapters in Isaiah, the first of the prophets when they put together the Old Testament. But all the things that God brought Isaiah through in his experience in Isaiah 6 are the things that uh, set the framework for his message and his ministry. Um, it didn't. I just want to read this, I know, just so we get this. But in Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah has an experience, an encounter with God, and it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. It was a day that Isaiah 
never forgot. It was an encounter, an experience that Isaiah would never forget. The road to holiness starts when we see God for who He is. It is a vision of holy God, and that's what happened to Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, 5, there is a response from Isaiah. He says, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The road to holiness begins when we see God for who He is. When we see God for who He is, we come to the second step. We see our lives as God sees them, sees our lives. In the midst of our lives, it is very easy to see our life from our perspective. And in the midst of that, we justify, we rationalize, we ignore God's perspective and we live our own life. Not only must we see God for who He is, but then we must see our life as God sees our life from His perspective. The role of the prophet was to remind the people of God's perspective. So easy to get bogged down in our lives and just see our life from our perspective. The prophet spoke for God and reminded the people this is the way God sees life, truth, your life, your actions, everything about the world. The prophet's role was to show the people God's perspective. My question I want to address this morning then, how does God see our sin? I believe it's critical on the road to holiness that we see our lives from God's perspective and we see our sin the way God sees our sin. My sense is as human beings, otherwise we will rationalize, we will justify the lives that we live, we will compare ourselves to others, or we will simply ignore what it is that God would say to us. It will not take us down the road to holiness. The road to holiness starts with a vision of holy God, but then comes to the place where we see our lives as God sees our lives. The question is, how does God see our sin? As a sample of Isaiah's message. Now you realize, so these weeks in the summer, I don't know if this is eight weeks, ten weeks for sure, Um, that we're going to be in Isaiah. We are summarizing, we are taking samples of Isaiah's 66 chapters, which represent 50 years. 50 years of Isaiah speaking for God, saying this is the way God sees your life. This is who God is. Wake up. See it. The way God sees it. As a sample of actually a majority of Isaiah's book, I want to look for just a few moments at Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. 
Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Now understand, this is a sample. The reality is, is the message that Isaiah communicates in 5, 1 through 7 is laced throughout the whole book. It, it, it is the content of, quite honestly, the majority of Isaiah's book. I want to read it, and then I want to maybe make a few comments before I close in prayer. The comments may take about 30 minutes, but understand, just a few comments. Isaiah 5. This is what Isaiah recorded, not only wrote, but apparently he sang it. He says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have... I'm sorry... What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression, for righteousness but behold, a cry for help. I have told you previously that um, the book of Isaiah is the most New Testament of the Old Testament books. And we're going to get to that in the Sundays that are just in front of us. It's amazing. But one of the little ways that Isaiah kind of reflects that New Testament perspective is he tells a parable here. Who was the one? <laughs> Recording the scripture, New Testament, told parables. It was Jesus. He told a story. And Isaiah tells a parable here. In fact, actually it says that he sang this. So we don't know historically if there was some kind of event and Isaiah stands up in a crowd and says, I have a song I want to sing. And he begins to talk and sing about the vineyard. And so there is this parable, there is this story uh, is, is based on experience that they would have understood that uh, then speaks a spiritual truth. And he talks about, he talks about, uh, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a vineyard of my beloved, my, my dearest friend, my BFF. 
and this is the song, is I want to tell you about my best friend. And, and he has a vineyard. And he goes on and he begins to describe what this best friend, now he hasn't identified the best friend yet, I kept pointing up, but I mean, you know how the story ends. But I have this best friend who has a vineyard. And I want you to know that my best friend, really the picture that he paints here, is the best friend has done everything possible for this vineyard to be successful. And he talks about how he, he, he picked the choicest of land, of location, he says in verse 1, it's on a very fruitful hill. He talks about how he, he, he cleared it of stones. He dug it up. He tilled up the soil. But also in Palestine, the ground has a lot of stones in it. And so to make a field productive, you would have had to clear the stones. And so he said, my, my, my dear friend, he cleared out all the... He meticulously went through the ground and cleared out all the stones. He, he did all the prep work that should have been done for this to be a successful place. Not only that, he bought the very best vines or plants. You know, you can buy different grades of plants when you plant things. And my best friend went to great lengths to get the very choicest of vines, of plants, so that this would, would be a successful uh, place. He talks about, in verse 2, how he built a tower in the midst of it. The tower would have been designed to, yes, maybe watch for fires, but also to watch for people who were coming to intrude on the field or, or animals to come in. And so the best friend provided protection for that. He even made a wine press. Don't have time to describe what that would have looked like in their day, but he was preparing for the fruit to come. He expected a great harvest. One of the themes that laces itself through the book of Isaiah is how God has initiated a relationship with His people Israel. And when I read these details about the vineyard, what I realize is that this is a sampling of what Isaiah says throughout all of his book that God initiated a relationship with one family of all the earth, the family of Abraham. He reached out and he blessed them in ways that he did not bless anyone else. Now he describes it in the parable as, as a, uh, someone, uh, the owner of a vineyard and all the things he does. And in the spiritual realm, Isaiah is communicating God did all of that. You know what I realized, and I know we've read to the end of the story, but really haven't got to it, studied it. We have to understand that God has also initiated a relationship with us as His children. And there are ways that God has blessed us as his people, as his children, because his hand has been in our life. And I say all of that to say at this point that when we sin, what we have to understand is that it is personal to God. Because God has established a covenant with us and when we violate our end of that covenant, 
It's not just that we're people and God is our creator. It's that God has initiated a relationship with us. He has chosen us. He has invested. He has poured his blessings into our life. And when we sin, God takes it personal. And I think sometimes we forget that. We go, oh, I'm a person. I make a choice. I decide what I want to do. I think this is best. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. No, the prophet came to say, no, you need to see your sin from God's perspective. And the first thing I believe we learn is that when we look at our lives and our sins specifically from God's perspective, God takes it personal because he has invested, he has initiated a relationship with us. He has poured out his blessings into our life. God sees our sin personally on a personal level. It's almost as if God said, I've done all of this for you. And how is it that you've responded? To my grace and my mercy. There's another parable that's told in the Bible, I think, that parallels this story. It's very interesting how the person in the story, David, responds to that. In 2 Samuel, it tells the story of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then arranging the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And the cover-up of all of that. You remember how the story unfolds? You kind of end that part of the story. And the Bible says that God sent the prophet Nathan to King David. Do you remember what his approach was? He said, let me tell you a story. I think Nathan actually was shaking in his boots, though. Uh, God told me to tell you this story. <laughs> not sure how this is going to come out. He says, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man had all this stuff. The poor man only had one prized possession, a little lamb that was a family pet. And he said, one day the rich man had friends, company come in from out of town. And he sends and he takes the poor man's one little lamb and sacrifices it to feed the guests that have come. David's infuriated. That man's got to pay four times for what he's done. That's not right. And there's this pause in the story. And you remember what Nathan then says? You are the man. And he goes and he begins to say, God has blessed you, provided you with peace and prosperity, and has positioned you and has poured out his blessings on you. And now you have done this and this and this and this. You are the man. It's interesting that when David confesses his sin and agrees with God's perspective of his life, it's interesting to me that when Nathan speaks to David, he says, that, that God speaks through Nathan and God says, he lists all the things that I've done to bless you and you've responded this way. And you know what's interesting? When we come to Psalm 51, which is David's prayer to God at that time of confession, I think in about verse 4, David says to God, against you and you alone have I done this wickedness. You see, David saw his sin from God's perspective and he realized 
God takes it personal. It was an affront of what God had done in his life. And I believe in the road to holiness as we come to this second step that we have to understand that God sees our sin personally. In the parable that Isaiah tells or sings, he transitions at the end of verse 2 and he kind of moves to a courtroom, from a parable to a courtroom. Now, the transition in verse 2 is at the very end and he says, well, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And it almost, you move to a courtroom where now God begins to make his plea in a court of law, what is logical, what is reasonable, and he says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? He talks about wild grapes. There was every expectation that it would be good, productive grapes. But it was wild grapes. What he begins to communicate is that the sins of the people have broke the covenant that God has made with God, that God has made with Israel. And through the book of Isaiah, we see, uh, quite honestly, and I've said this, the vast majority of his Isaiah saying, this is your sin, this is your sin. And we talked about last Sunday how he was specific in calling out those sins, the sins of idolatry and pride and corruption and oppression. And one of the sins I didn't mention last week, but that he, that he speaks about, the sin of complacency. In chapter 32, verses 9, 10, and 11, he talks about complacency, that you've grown cold, complacent, you've ignored me. You know, when we begin to look at the sins of idolatry and pride and corruption, oppression, complacency, what we realize when we see these from God's perspective is that God initiated a relationship with us, with Israel and with us, and he made a covenant with us. And when we choose to sin, it's not just that our sin uh, is a choice that we make, but it is, it is a violation of that covenant agreement that we had with God. And we see these sins on a personal level. And so when God said, I ought to be the only love of your life, you've committed the sin of idolatry. You've chosen to love something else that is made by your own hands. When you think of the sin of pride, Basically, God, when he says, I've reached down to bless your life and to be involved in your life, and your pride says, I will do this myself, which is an affront to a covenant-making God. We can talk about corruption and oppression when God said, I've loved you and I've blessed you and I've done all of this to you, and you've treated your brothers and your sisters like this. I take it personally, and it is a violation of the covenant that I've made with you. And when you come to the sin of complacency, God's saying, man, I've done all of this for you. And it appears that you don't even care. You walk day by day not even acknowledging me. You've grown complacent. You know, one of the interesting things about the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, Things were good. It was a time of peace and prosperity in God's kingdom. It was like that vineyard that God had just, boy, he'd, he'd done. 
He'd gone above and beyond himself. He'd done amazing things. Isn't it interesting so many times in our lives when things are good that our hearts begin to drift from God, the covenant-making God. Many times it's when things are hard. Oh, we're clinging to God. God, I need you. I need you. We're kind of, it, it's kind of interesting that when God blesses our life and everything kind of lines out, it's kind of like we just put it on cruise control. I can handle this. That's offensive to a covenant-making God who's blessed our lives. And he blesses us, and it's like we take those blessings and we just kind of go live our own life. You see, what I realize from God's perspective is the sin in our lives is a matter of the heart. Oh, we can talk about idolatry and pride and corruption, oppression and all of those things, the bad sins we could say that are visible and outward. But you know what I really think hurts God more than anything else? Is when our hearts don't love Him the way we ought to. And I really think that's where they found themselves in Isaiah's day. And actually we see it and we will see it in the weeks to come. You see it laced throughout the book of Isaiah. But he says your sin is a matter of the heart. It's your heart that is turned away. And your life, you are living your life apart from and that is more offensive than maybe anything else that we do outwardly because our hearts have drifted from Him. And I think that's part of the sin, the wild grapes that God exposes. Isaiah goes on in those last three verses, 5, 6, and 7 of Isaiah 5. And this is what God begins to say. He said, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. So the hedge would have been built around the vineyard to protect it from animals and people coming in. He says, and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. You know, I think there's actually a point at the end of verse 6 where they're listening to this parable. And, you know, what is that landowner going to do? The landowner has pumped all of this energy and resources into this vineyard, but it's produced wild grapes. What would make sense? Is, is, the, is the, the vineyard owner going to continue just to pump all of these resources and energy into this vineyard that is only producing wild grapes? No, what is logical? Eventually, that, that vineyard owner just goes, okay, if that's the way you want it, then let's just see how it goes for you. And it, you kind of see this story from a human perspective until you get to the end, and the person, the vineyard owner says, and I'm going to withhold the rain. Oh, this isn't just the landowner. We're talking about God. I need you to know 
that if you read through Isaiah's 66 chapters, the vast majority is about the judgment of God. And that's exactly what is described at the end of this parable. You know the thing that I noticed about the judgment of God? I don't know, we kind of get this perception of the, the judgment of God. God's going to like send down lightning bolts like, you know, you see, you know, zap, okay. You know, you're just walking down the street of Huntington and the person you know is a sinner, you know, gets that by lightning and you go, I had a feeling God was going to take him out. Little self-righteous little Christian, yeah. You know, that's the idea we get of the judgment of God, him sending down lightning bolts. But you know what I get from the story? God says, my hand, I have, I've pumped all this energy into this vineyard. But when it produces wild grapes, I can't keep doing that. Therefore, I'm just going to take my hand off of it. And I'm going to let erosion and weeds and animals just do what the process of deterioration does. And just let it have it. You want to have it your way? That's fine. Let's see how that goes for you. You know the thing that I believe the scripture teaches about the judgment of God? It's not so much the lightning bolt. It's God just taking his hand off. His hand of provision, protection, guidance. And just let sin have its way. I don't know that that matters today. God is God and he can judge any way he wants to. He can send lightning bolts or he can simply take his hand off of our life. But it only makes sense that he has to do something different than he is doing. Because God is God and we are not. And if we want to live our own lives, God will let us. And he'll let us suffer the consequences. You can call it the judgment of God. You can call it whatever you want to. But the reality is, is God will say, you want to do your own thing? I'll let you do that. And someday when you look around and say, man, why is there so much devastation around me? Maybe you'll come to the real realization is because I rejected God's hand in my life. And God is letting me suffer the consequences I want you to know from God's perspective, our sin has consequences. Is God gracious and merciful? Oh my, yes. You know the thing that strikes me when you put the chronology together? Is Isaiah for 50 years is saying, turn back to God. Turn back to God. Your sin is an offense to Him. There's going to come a payday someday. You can't keep doing this. And year after year and decade after decade, I'm not saying that God immediately withdraws his hand or you see the immediate consequences of sin, but sooner or later, it may be next week, it may be next month, next year, next decade, but you cannot expect to live apart from God and God continue to leave his hand on your life and him to protect and provide and take care of you. No God will withdraw his hand so that we can suffer the consequences of sin so that we begin to see our sin from God's perspective 
And part of that perspective is there are consequences when we choose to live apart from God. And so he says in verse 7, the vineyard, he finally identifies everybody in the story. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This is like Nathan saying, you are the man. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, what he found was oppression. He looked for righteousness, but what he beheld was a cry for help for those who were suffering from oppression and unrighteousness. truth that is uh, my one point for my whole sermon for these eight nine ten weeks is that holiness is a reflection of a relationship with holy God that is a huge truth that we learn about the road to holiness that holiness is a reflection of a relationship with holy God I want you to know this morning the opposite of that is also true. That unholiness is a reflection of being out of relationship with holy God. God sees our sin relationally. It's personal to Him. Our sin is an affront to say, I will do my own thing. God wants us to know that there are consequences. We come to a point of decision on the road to holiness. And it's the second step. And the second step on the road to holiness is the confession of sin. That we agree with God about our sin. And I believe that the key to us agreeing with God is seeing our lives from God's perspective and specifically seeing our sin from God's perspective. Now, next Sunday, it's going to be a little bit happier Sunday if you want to come back. It won't be the third week on sin. I, I say that, but I'm saying it's a dominant theme throughout Isaiah. And it's something we cannot rush past. Otherwise, we will get off on a road that does not lead to holiness. We have to be honest before God. And we have to see our lives as God sees our lives. We cannot move. Let me just be honest. We cannot move to God's work in our life of purification of our sin until we acknowledge our sin. If we think that God somehow is going to bless us and pour his life into us when we choose to live on our own. We don't understand a God who is holy, holy, holy. I've said it before, I'll say it again this morning. We can leave God on our terms. But we can only come to God, back to God on his terms second step is we must confess our sin we must see and agree 
with God about our sin. Would you stand with me this morning?